Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today our guest is Christopher Lawrence. Christopher is a retired law enforcement officer. After 28 years of serving his community, he took on something that not many others would. Christopher decided he was going to take on the challenge of a Trans-America bike ride to help raise awareness about suicide and mental health in first response. Christopher, we're honored to have you on the podcast with us today. Linda and I are both very excited to chat with you. Um, Before we get into all that, could you please take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience, sir? Sure. Thank you all for having me on the show. Um, Chris Lowrance, I'm a, a Gaston County, North Carolina native. I've served 32 years with the Gaston County Police Department. Um, served in different capacities from canine handler to SWAT team leader. Uh, retired in December of 2020. Um, I'm married. I have four children that age and range from uh, 12 to 28. Wow. It's a lot of kids. <laughs> it is a lot of kids. <laughs> Christopher, um, I mean, I know you. I met you through um, First Help or Blue Help at the time. Um, and you took on a, how I got to know you, I, I meet you as I started following you through uh, F- First Help and also your website called Penny for Their Thoughts. Share with us a little bit about that. What inspired you? Well, Linda, I, I actually I did a 5K run with my son when he was in the elementary school. And after the run, I had so many problems with my knees that I decided that I was going to take up bike riding. <laughs> uh, my, yeah. father, my father-in-law, uh, Dean Ward, uh, he cycled. Uh, Dean was in his late 60s. Uh, he was kind of my inspiration to get into cycling. And um I bought a used bicycle, and he was really excited. We were going to do a, uh, a local ride here in North Carolina called Mountains to the Coast, and uh, they ride it annually. It's about a 500-mile ride over a week. And um, I told my wife I was scared he was going to kill me because there was no way I could ride across the state of North Carolina. And, uh, you know, it was. I started riding and training, and we were going to ride that fall and uh, late September, early October is typically when they have that ride. And uh, he was training up in the mountains of North Carolina. He lived in Beach Mountain. And uh, he, he started coughing a little bit when he was training and went to the doctor and uh, found out that he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So uh, unfortunately, we were not able to uh, take the ride together. But I went and did the ride, uh, you know, honoring him. And uh, in about five, minutes, five uh, months after that, uh, Bing passed away. Oh, wow. That was uh, fall of 2018. I went and rode, uh, it's called Mountains to the Coast Ride here in North Carolina. Uh, in 2019, I went and rode it again, and 
after I rode the second one, I told my wife, I said, you know what would be really cool is when I retire is to buy a bicycle and ride it all the way across the United States. And to my surprise, she said, go do it. She said that's something that her daddy would have loved to have done. Then I got scared. Oh. I got her blessings to <laughs> go do this. So now, you know, and, and I don't have a, I don't have a history of cycling. I, I started in 2018. Um, so everything that I've learned is I pretty much learned the year that, that you came in contact with me on my ride across the United States. Um, but I started looking and trying to decide where I wanted to ride. And I kept coming across this trans America bicycle route. And I was looking at it and how hard it was. And it was going to go through the Rocky Mountains and the Ozark Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains. And, and I got to thinking, this is, this is really going to be a, a tremendous undertaking. And I talked to Mountie and I said, this needs to be bigger than me. It needs to be uh. support something with it. So while I was working at the elementary school, uh, I was sitting in the back parking lot and I can remember it playing this day. I was searching on the computer for different type of law enforcement organizations. And I just stumbled across blue help, which is, you know, now first help. Yeah. Uh, and I read about it and how they, the, the assistance that they gave to the families of first responders that we lose uh, by suicide. And, you know, I, I don't know, Linda, I, I don't know why it struck me, but I felt like just that was something I wanted to support. So I typed out an email to Karen Solomon. And yep. of course, if you, you know how Karen is. Yep. I didn't hear anything back. <laughs> so I gave it a few weeks and I called and I talked to a lady on the phone and it wasn't Karen. And anyway, she ended up getting Karen Solomon, give me a call back. And, and I think Karen thought of us maybe a little bit on the crazy side. So she, I think, was a little bit reluctant. And she said, sure, you know, if you want to support the organization. And I was telling her I was going to ride a penny a mile. And, you know, my, my bicycle ride was called a penny for their thoughts. And it was, uh, you know, if I'd ride 100 miles, somebody would donate a dollar. If I rode 1,000 miles, they would donate $10. And my goal whenever I started this was to raise $5,000 to go to help the families uh, and help the survivors. Um, I flew from Charlotte, North Carolina to Portland, Oregon, and uh, the Landau family picked me up. Uh, they, they're active with uh, first responders in, in their community. Their son's a, a sergeant out there with the sheriff's office. And they took me to Astoria, Oregon, spent the night at the hotel, the same place I was, had breakfast with me. And uh, the next day, I, I started out on a bicycle with a whole lot more gear than what I needed and uh, started a three-month journey of, of uh, riding a pain train pretty much till I got back to Virginia. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I mean, you're, you're just rambling. You just cut that story, like, so short. Um, but I'm not going to let you. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to get We're going to get into it. Um, you sort of did it in a nutshell, but we're going to get into it in a little bit. When you got there, um, I know that, first of all, it hit a chord with me when you said um, to Melanie, um, this, if I'm going to do this, this needs to be bigger than me. Um, so I need to have a purpose um, to, to have the strength and the courage and the perseverance um, to be able to to take on a Trans America bike ride, um, so 
when you got there then did you plan it like when you got out to Oregon you flew out to Oregon you took your bike all with you share with our listeners like paint that picture for them did you take a bike with you oh gosh like yeah oh gosh share that I took my I took I took my bicycle with me um uh, I bought a used salsa Marrakesh touring bicycle and uh, a touring bicycle is built heavier uh, to be able to carry weights. Uh, you know, the weight of my gear, I guess, on the bicycle is somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 70 pounds, wow. 80 pounds worth of stuff, which is way too much. Um, but I like being comfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, what was all that stuff that you stuff. took with you on the bike? Oh, my gosh. Let's see. Well, I, did, I had a tent and I'll start by saying I hate tents. Um, I I also had a hammock and I love hammocks. Yeah. So I had a hammock and a rain fly, which is basically a tarp that goes over top of it, uh, and a bug net that will go around it. Uh, I had a really expensive down sleeping quilt. Uh, and it's, it's not a sleeping bag. It's, it's got a section in the bottom that your feet go in. Yeah. That's kind of like a sleeping bag. But as it comes up over your body, it's uh, it it open built. Yeah, uh, that is just something my personal preference. I guess part of my things that I deal with uh, from law enforcement in my career is I don't feel I don't like to get in positions where I feel like I'm confined. Uh, I don't deal with it well. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason I use a, a sleeping quilt. Uh, had a quilt that went underneath the hammock that keeps you warm because, you know, you're just laying on that really thin um, piece of cloth under the hammock. And if you're in a sleeping bag, you compress all the insulation. So I had a quilt that went under it and uh, out in the Rockies, uh, I think my coldest temperatures were probably around 29 degrees uh, up in Eastern Oregon and Idaho. Um, My bicycle had uh, two bags at the back wheel, kind of like saddle bags called panniers. And I was pulling this trailer and I remember the trailer. <laughs> oh, I remember too. <laughs> um, the, the trailer was a thousand miles of misery. Um, it was difficult to ride with. Um, you know, I, I said, I'm not really a cyclist. So I didn't go and like have a shakedown ride before I left. So I had all of my weight pretty much in the trailer which wanted to push the back wheel of my bicycle left and right. And I couldn't, I would struggle to get up hills pulling it. And then when you really should get to enjoy going downhill and coast, I had to stay on my brakes and go really slow because it wanted to push the back end of the bicycle out from under me. Yeah. Personal items that I took, um, gosh, I took a pair of uh, convertible pants that the legs would zip off of. So I'd have pants or shorts. I think I had two or three T-shirts, uh, three pair of socks, a couple pair of underwear, and um, had a rain jacket and a down vest, uh, toboggan, and then some gloves. But that was pretty much all the clothes that I had with me for, for three months. For three months, wow. Uh, my cooking equipment was uh, a frying pan and a, a small pot that holds maybe a quart um, that was all that I had with, a and, and when I started, I started with a, a, a cook stove that would work with wood or I had an alcohol burner, 
uh, that I could cook my food over. But like I say, I, I learned on this trip. Yeah. Um, I, I learned after speaking with a man who had riding experience while I was coming home, I was trying to lighten my load because I didn't need the kitchen sink, you know, that I took with me. Yeah. Um, I had my frying pan in my hand and I was at a auto parts place that had like a FedEx or a UPS shipping center in it. And the old man asked me, he said, uh, what are you doing? And, I, and he, and he kind of laughed before I could answer. He said, you lighten in your load. And I said, I am. And he said, what are you going to do with that frying pan? And I said, I like to cook bratwurst in it. And he laughed. He said, send it home. He said, get rid of it. You don't need it. And I said, but how am I going to cook my, my bratwurst? He said, you got a pot? And I said, yes, sir. He said, cut them in half and put them down in it. And I thought, you are a genius. <laughs> so I sent home the frying pan, and I sent home my underwear. And this box comes in, and my wife gets it, and she opens it up, and it's all this assortment of items that I thought I would need that I decided I, they weren't worth what it cost me physically to pull them. And uh, she calls me on the phone, and she said, I got the box. She said, why are your underwear in here? <laughs> and I said, I don't, ha I don't have to have them. <laughs> so everything that I could get rid of that I just really didn't think that I needed, <laughs> I sent home from my first mailing. And then I went to, uh, rode into Missoula, Montana, and they had a, actually had a facility there that could box up the trailer and mail it home. So I added another um, two bags to my bicycle, another one bag, big bag on the back of my bicycle and sent the trailer home, and that really made my trip riding a whole lot easier. Yeah. So share with us a little bit about that. Like, so here you are. You're saying you're not a, a, a cyclist, right? You're not a, a cyclist at all. But you had, uh, I feel that you maybe wanted to fulfill your father-in-law's dream of, of you both going on a bike ride together like this big bike ride and you never got to be able to do that and then being able to create a purpose uh you know in order for you to sort of have resilience right to to, to keep on it to, to keep on it to stay on it but you're on this bike ride you're going across this bike you end up in Oregon and you you got picked up by this family was this planned yes. was it was it, it was <clears throat> this was it during the beginning of covid yeah. Um, you know, right when everything was getting locked down and I couldn't find a rental car to get from Portland to Astoria, which was about probably close to two hours. Yeah. I couldn't find a rental car for less than like five or $600. And you know, the, the trips are funded out of my pocket and I didn't want to have to spend $500 to get a car to drive, you know, just to, to my starting point. And, uh, Karen Solomon sent out uh, a message, I guess, through the, if you want to call it the blue network and uh, Pat and his uh, Pat Landau and his wife, I don't want to say her name's Kim. Um, they, they responded back through, uh, uh, through whatever channel to Karen and said, we'll pick him up at the airport. And uh, whenever I got there, I found out they lived like three and a half, four hours away from the airport. So wow. they drove you know three or four hours to get to me and then drove me another two hours out to the hotel in uh, Astoria, where I started, I uh, spent the night there. I mean, I felt like I had my parents with me, honestly. Um, but that was, I think that was my first taste of my larger experience coming across the country 
in meeting good people. Mm-hmm. Um, a career in law enforcement, and I'm sure the fire service, nobody's happy to see you. You know, they might be happy to see the fire department if their house is burning, but it's still a bad situation. If it's a car wreck, it's still a bad situation. They might be happy that the first responders are there, but it's a bad situation. And in law enforcement, you know, you get there, it's a domestic, it's a child abuse. Somebody's broken into a home, stolen the people's, you know, belongings. You get jaded over the course of a career and you start looking at the negative side of everything. Um, the world is a bad place. Uh, people are bad people. And going on my trip, I think what I discovered is that's not the country that we live in. Uh, what I experienced riding 4,200 miles was every single person that I met was good to me. And it restored something in me that everybody out there is not bad people. Yeah. Most of the most of the people that you're going to encounter are good people. Yeah. But you don't hear about good people on the news. You don't, and you don't see them in, in the profession that first responders have. You you don't have situations that are good. You have situations that are bad. Right. So you're for me, going, the ride yeah. was it restored in me. You know that that there are good people. Yeah. Were you were you aware going into the ride that you had sort of adapted um, that that negative perspective or outlook, or was it once you started to see the good in people that that you realized um, a shift in mindset and, and a shift back to the positive? I, I think it's a shift in mindset after I started. Um, okay. and, and my wife has made comments in the past that she'll say, Chris, you always look for the bad things. You look for the bad things that's going to happen. You, you you don't look for the good things. And, and I still do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that touched me a little bit and got me thinking. And by looking at the bad things that happen or could happen is what kept me safe on my right. job for 28 years. Yeah. You know, you, you look for the bad things that can happen and you try and prepare yourself for the bad things that can happen mm-hmm. and you lose sight of the good things that are happening around you. Yeah. Right. Being vigilant. Yes. Like hypervigilant. Hypervigilant. Yes, absolutely. So I know you went on this ride, but I, I if I can take continue on with this conversation of, of your career as a mm-hmm. first responder, um, as a police sure. officer, can we can we get into that a little bit? Um, and then it'll, sure it'll start to share in the story of why you're still also so passionate about this. Um, tell us a little bit about your career. Like, you, you know, you start to give us a little bit tip, like your wife, Melanie, had said to you, yeah, you're always looking for the bad things, Chris, and, and noticing that. And yeah, you were like, yeah, I, that's sort of what kept me safe, um, being watching everything around me so that I could protect myself um, doing my job right were the things that um that you you noticed like that as a a police officer maybe even as a young police officer a you know trauma of the job um that you noticed that might have affected you i don't think early on in your career that you recognize those things um you're you're young and you're invincible uh, and you don't realize the uh, the pieces that you're picking up. And, and throughout my rides, I'm, I always talk about pieces. 
Um, you know, the call that you go to that an, an infant has died, the domestic that you go to, or the child abuse call that you go to, all of those things, you carry something from each and every call that you go to, Absolutely. whether you realize it or not. You pick up a piece from that call. Yeah. And some pieces are bigger than others. Um, the, I think the biggest piece that I carry from my career, uh, Officer Tyler Herndon worked for Mount Holly Police Department. And uh, December the 11th of 2020, he was killed in the line of duty. Uh, shortly after we all left from a convenience store in Mount Holly having coffee, um, Tyler ended up losing his life over a $300 breaking and entering. The, the subject stole $300. Well, uh, I had officers there. I was on the scene. And, you know, at, at that point, I was 28 years deep in my career. I was nine days from retiring uh, and had not experienced a, a violent in the line of duty death of a fellow officer or somebody that was in law enforcement that I worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that's one of the big pieces that I carry. And, you know, I, I remember leaving that night and driving back to the Gaston County police headquarters and hearing the call come in. Um, I was a supervisor. Uh, a couple of my officers responded as backups to, uh, to assist Tyler whenever he, he determined that somebody was inside the, uh, inside the building. Um, and a lot of times I stop and I think, would it have been any different if I hadn't continued on to my office to work on paperwork and I had gotten off the interstate and went back Would would my actions if they were different, would it have played out differently? And, and I know it's second guessing and it's trying to, you, you're looking at things with 2020 vision that are in hindsight, but those are the type of things that you, that you play over and over in your mind. Yeah. Um, other calls, you know, you know, pieces that I have is I, I had an infant one time that he was a, a unresponsive, not breathing. We did CPR on the child, got a pulse back. Uh, the child later died at the hospital, but I don't remember the child's name. I don't remember exactly the address or, or the road that it was on, but I remember he had dirty fingernails, mm. you know, and, and why do you carry, why do you carry the pieces that you carry? I mean, what, what makes that one part stick in my mind? You know, I, I, I don't know that. And I'll probably never will know the answer to it. Um, it I, I, the way I look at it now is the things that I deal with now um, with like the anxiety of, uh, of being confined. Uh, you're not going to put me in a third row of a minivan. Uh, I take medication to get on an airplane to go and do his bicycle rides. Um, but the things that I experience now is what I have donated to the citizens here where I, where I live to help keep them safe. That's something I, that's part of me that I have given, uh, society. And I think all the first responders, they, they give a piece of themselves mm-hmm. over the course of their career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hear, I hear you say, you know, 
I don't know why, you know, we, I remember that part or like other first responders, there's certain things that they remember about a call that they were on. And yet you are correct. They, every call, first responder, fire department or police department, they do remember, you know, those calls. They pick up something, whether it's small. And I remember you saying that a long time ago on that first ride. You said that, and I was listening to you saying that. And I was, I say it all the time. I I remember you saying that a couple of years ago. Um, You pick up something, whether it be big or small. And they and it just accumulates, right? It's like others refer to as putting a rock in the backpack. Um, you know, right. they're wearing a backpack and they're putting a rock back in it, and before you know it, there's there's lots of rocks in there, and it gets very heavy, and it's not being unloaded. Um, and um, and before you know it, something has to give. Um, so does that thinking about those things does that like carry you through, like, you know? to now want to continue to do it. I know you did a Transamerica ride, but to continue to do it, right? On that journey, you stopped off at different departments on your way. Um, share with us about that. Well, you know, it's talking to law enforcement, especially uh, officers that's been in it for a long time, Uh talking about mental health issues with them's hard. Mm. Whenever, whenever I started my, my bicycle ride across the country, you know, I stopped in and talked with, if I saw police officers on the side of the road, I would stop and talk with them. Yeah. Uh, I'd give them a, a departmental patch and, and you try and touch on the, the sensitive topic of mental health. Um, older officers are harder to talk to uh, when it comes to mental health things. Uh, there was, it was when I started, that's what you signed up to do. Mm. You know, what did you expect it was going to be like? Yeah. You know, suck it up, go on. Uh, I, I think that mentality has shifted now. And I, I think part of the stigma associated with officers and first responders saying, uh, you know, raise their hand and say, I've got something going on. I need a little bit of help. I, I think that's starting to become, I know at my department, it's starting to become um, more recognized and more accepted that they're going to have issues. Uh, somebody that spends that many years in uh, the first responder fields, they're going to experience things. Um, what we need to look at now is the resiliency part of it. Mm-hmm. What tools can we give these people that maybe they will, that they'll recognize um, you know, maybe I'm feeling a certain way because of the experiences that I've had. Um, and I hope in my, in my bicycle ride, you know, by, by stopping and talking to officers sitting in a crawl on the side of the road, I, I hope they hear the message of, you know, changing the, the way it's looked at, uh, first helps is smash the stigma, mm-hmm. uh, I hope that that has part or will play a part in those officers' lives, especially the younger ones. Um, they're going to have stuff come out they don't realize, and they have to know how to receive those things and how to deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. You want to chime in? 
Yeah, and it's I think what you're saying is is so important and, and so accurate, right? When when a young um, first responder, police officer, firefighter, ambulance worker is just entering the career field, for them uh, to be told, to be reassured, um, you know that, that you might have some mental and emotional reactions to the stuff that you see, and that that it's okay to to ask for help and um, for that example to be set, I think is is crucial. Um, I'm still uh, thinking about when when you you talked about the the baby with the dirty fingernails and and you asked the question. It's such a deep question for someone to ask themselves. Like, why do we carry the pieces, um, the pieces that we carry? And and that you know that probably is an unanswerable question. Uh, I know for myself, um, I meditate right, and and a lot of times these images or these things will will come up to the surface for me. And um, I'm just able, I'm able to let them go through, through that process. And yeah. um, it's like a change to, to my state of being, I suppose. And I'm wondering if you have something like that happen when you go on these, on these long bike rides, what kind of an experience that is for you, if you, you have a change to, um, to, to that mental process, to that way of being, if it's helpful emotionally. Yeah, I think it's very helpful emotionally. Um, and it's, I think it, it helps me realize, it, you know, when you're at home and you look at all the things that you have to do, you, know, you got to mow the grass, you got to change the oil in the car, you got to take the car and get the tires rotated. Son's got to be at football, daughter's got to be at your, you've got all this stuff. It's like somebody throwing balls at you all the time and you're, you're trying to catch what you can, but you feel like you're just smothered in it. And then, you know, you end up with some officers, maybe they've got some marital problems and you throw those in there and they just feel like they're getting smothered. But me going on these bicycle trips, as much as I like to pull my hair out sometimes at home, you miss that stuff when you're away from it. Mm. Once you remove yourself from it, because when you're out there, it's, I, I don't have a partner that I ride with. I have some people that I, I might meet or make, make an acquaintance or friend. But being away from home, on your own, um, I think it's like people going to hike in the Appalachian Trail. Mm -hmm. It, it, you know, Jay, I, I don't know, I really don't know how to explain it. It's just, it's almost like you you have a sense of, you know, I can survive this. Yeah. And if, if I can ex survive this out here by myself with a bicycle and a tent or a hammock eating ramen noodles and whatever you can get your hands on at a gas station, you know, it makes you look at the things that you're experiencing at home that they're really not that bad. Yeah. It, it, may, it makes you see it in a different light. Yeah. I love that you're saying that because, you know, when a message getting a first responder who might be listening um, in and hearing your story right now, you know, it's sort of like you're putting yourself in a, a position of um, just being able to get into the depth of thinking and right, processing your own thoughts on it from a daily basis to here I am alone. And um, a lot of officers, um, first responders in general, um, you know, when they're going through um, maybe some mental health challenges, struggles, um, they tend to isolate um, themselves away from everyone around them because they don't right. want 
they don't want family to notice, right? Uh, what's going on? And so, um, you know, the thoughts um, process is sort of like similar, right? Isolating, you're right. isolated away from other human interaction um, unless you meet someone. And then there's a first responder who's struggling, but intentionally isolating away from um, interaction. Um, and being able to sort of think about, you know, that process, but you being you being able to start to take it to a different level, putting yourself in their shoes. If you haven't experienced yeah. mental health on the job, you know challenges on the job, and how I, that isolation can be um, take it take it to another place, right? In a, another different another different place. And I I know when you were away and uh, on that first bike ride, you were feeling very lonely, right? I was. And putting I was. Your, yeah, and, and, put, and, yeah, and you said. There was one night I was really bad, and I got up the next morning, and and you and a lot of other families had sent me. You sent me a picture of your son. I did. Um, You're gonna make me cry. Real upset. (laughs) I did. I did. I I told my wife that night. I said I I was in. I called it the damn campground because it was at the base of a dam in Kentucky, and Kentucky was awful. Um, I was ready to be finished. It was hot, miserable. I was tired of eating beef jerky and ramen noodles. And, and I, I told my wife, I said, Melly, I'm done. I am just, I'm sick of it. I mean, it was two months, over two months deep into this. And um, she said, well, do a live tonight and tell them. Hmm. Tell them how you feel. And I did. And I got up the next morning and Later, I learned that Karen Solomon had sent something out on, on Blue Health, uh, you know, that I was struggling. But I had all these messages posted on my Facebook page of people's loved ones that had died by suicide. All these first responders. And it, it makes you step back and realize that what you're experiencing is nowhere near what these first responders experienced and most of them experienced it on their own yeah by themselves with feeling that they have nobody to talk to wow. um, yeah i remember that i forgot about it until you just brought that up um you know yeah a lot of well, families there, had some pictures I, I forget so much about rides and and my family would tell you i'm terrible with names i am oh no you're not but I would remember people's names on this bike ride of, you know, first responders or family members or uh, Sierra Dooley's another one that I remember and Amanda Button. And I just, I don't know why that those things stick with me. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think they're good. They're, they're emotional attachments about tragic incidents but it's a good attachment. It's, mm. it's a, it's a good, um, I don't know. It's a good reference point for me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things like with first help and their, their survivors banquet that they do is so important because it brings all these families together that all share the kids share the, the moms and dads or brothers and sisters they they all share the dark part of uh, losing someone to suicide. 
um, you know, every year on my bicycle rides, I tell Melanie never again. I'm not doing this next year. I'm not doing this next year. But you do. <laughs> and then I end up, I do, I do. And then about 10 days into it, I say, why did I do this? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Chris. But, like, this year I'm going back. I'm going back to Texas and I meet the families and the, see the children and I know why I do it. Mm. Yeah. I, I see the reasons that I do it. Yeah. And your efforts um, do not go unnoticed by all those families for sure. I want to get back to the bike rides and you just said there for a second there, you said, I'm not good at names. Um, that was one of the things uh, I shared with Jay earlier on yeah. today. That was one of the things I, I followed you live. You do. I want to share with the listeners for a little bit and go back a little bit. <laughs> so um, Chris went on the bike rides and um, in the evening time um, or when he was finished up for the day, you would go on do a live or you record a video and put it on your Facebook page, right? Um, penny for, a penny for the thoughts. And um, so... I started following that and watching your lives. I was waiting for your lives to come on. I really, really connected with you um, because <laughs> you sounded so authentic and so genuine um, in what you were sharing. Um, when you were feeling down, you let us know it. Um, in a Not a negative way, but it was, I'm struggling, you know, and then we would instantly, you know, be able to pick you up a little bit to get you through another day, another ride. Um, but the one thing that really, really struck me um, was that when you stopped off at different um, departments, you stopped off with departments, every stop along the way, you always made it a point to, s wherever you could, whether it be the fire department or the police department, at the side of the road, maybe in when you were buying some, jerky at the, in one of the stores I, whatever it was you always made it a point to, to stop off in different departments and, and speak with first responders about mental health awareness and um, but one of the when at the end of the day when you were sharing this and you post pictures up there on, on, on the site um, you would mention all the names that you spoke with first and last name all of them and I remember saying, he's not even reading a piece of paper here. Um, he is remembering the names of that day, that particular day. It didn't matter if it was next week or a or couple of rides behind. Um, but you, you remember that day, at the end of the day, who the name of the officer was. And, and there was multiples of them and their names. And I was so impressed this man is taken all in, which meant to me you were actively listening when you were right. when you were talk, speaking with them, and and you made note of their names, a mental note of their names, and and then you would share it with us at the end of the day, and I was like, this dude is so cool, like he is like so. I was so impressed, and I shared that was one of the things I shared with Jay. Um, this guy remembered everyone's names. So you might say that you're not good at names, with names. But believe me, sir, you are good with names. Um, when, it, not, when it mattered. I'm not, 
I'm not good in Iceland because nobody can pronounce those names. (laughs) (laughs) It is is so interesting, though, isn't it? Like the way that um, when you step away from from the chaos and the clutter of life, right? Like you mentioned, oil changes, rotate the ties, all these things. Um, And first respond to mental health matters to to those of us that that it matters to you know when you when you step away from uh from the grind of of daily life to focus on something that matters uh the way that that memory function and other things um change along with that very interesting to me yeah you know one of the things that um at our department matt hensley matt's a uh matt is a brilliant police officer uh, he's a captain at our police department now. Uh, Matt, I truly believe one day will be a, a, a chief at, at a police department. But Matt has started, he, he's really gotten into this mental health stuff uh, since I started my bicycle rides. Um, his wife actually started a Wives of the Green and Gray. Uh, our department's colors are green and gray. So she's she started a group called Wives of the Green and Gray. And they will have... Uh, a dinner a cookout something at their house one of the other wives houses and they invite in uh wives girlfriends of police officers um and it gives the the wives that have we'll, we'll call them veteran wives uh who's lived the life of being a spouse of a police officer mm-hmm. and seen the way that their that their husband has changed it lets them share that stuff with these younger women um, and girlfriends because they're going to see their boyfriend or their husband change over the course of time. They're going to see them change. Yeah. And they have to understand. I I think it's so important because when you start taking all the stressors, all the compound traumas that the officers experience, and you, you couple that stuff with marital problems, it's it's almost like you're lighting a fuse for something to happen. Mm. Yeah. And if having a support group like that at a department helps the the spouses, the wives, you know, maybe see this building or see this coming, uh, it, that maybe it keeps keeps them married, keeps them together. Uh, and takes out a huge part of stress uh, that would be upon a, a police officer, you know, going through, you know, custody and the distribution of the marital assets, and all those stuff that's associated with it. That's so much stress, and and you know, maybe that's the part, the the straw that that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, you know, maybe this is something that will help hold that together. Um, I, I think there's a lot of little things like that that not just people inside the agency, but people outside the agency can do you know, to maybe help these these first responders uh, be success, successful in, in getting to the end of their career at, as whole as they can. I I love that. So do you? I this is happening within your department that you worked for? Yes, ma'am. Wow. That's a, yes, that's amazing. I love that because that is definitely a huge missing piece um, for families yeah. is um, to be aware of those red flags of behavioral changes um, right. with with a loved one, right? And um, you know, we've we've heard it from other 
interviews that we've done, like from families who are suicide loss survivor, like from um, firefighter, their daughter was a firefighter, and they were like, you know, they were, this is cool. Our daughter is kicking ass as being a real cool firefighter, right? But they did not even know, like, understand what the word PTSD, um, you know, was, and didn't, and they wished they were maybe briefed on on that beforehand, um, you know, in the right. beginning, so that they could be involved. And uh, it's definitely a missing piece. And I love that your department are are doing that type of stuff, getting families involved with the first responder. It it sort of eliminates isolation, right? Um, if families are, are being it involved. Helps. Yeah, it helps with that. And then also, um, you know, creating that awareness. Uh, this is this, These are signs to maybe watch out for. Um, I yeah. love that. I, I love it. I love it, for sure. Jay is thinking there. You want to hop in? Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking along the lines of exactly what you were saying. I was also thinking another good point that was made was how life stressors, um, divorce, things like that, um, that they, they contribute, right? When, when a first responder is at their mental and emotional uh, best, that that matters and when a person begins to suffer regardless of what area of their life is suffering those traumas tend to surface and and it, it can be an unraveling um smashing the stigma is really important and i think that the families um you know that that component of um that component of the conversation is is often overlooked, and uh, I think that's unfortunate. And I think that bringing the families in and getting them involved in a conversation about uh, witnessing trauma, about understanding what their loved one may be going through, will uh, lead to compassion. It'll lead to progress, and uh, it will reduce suffering. I think there's a lot of good points made there, man. Yeah. You know, and it's, I, th- I think it goes beyond just the family. I think it, it has to go into the administration of agencies as well. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if you have someone that's, if their performance drops, there, there's a reason why it drops. Yeah. And I think instead of just, you know, doing a, a reprimand or, or some kind of disciplinary action because, maybe they're not meeting standards. Let's, let's try to figure out why, what's causing this. You dig a little bit deeper and find out what, what is causing this. This, this officer used to be a bang up officer and do a great job. And now they're, they're just not. Yeah. And you know, it, maybe it takes, maybe it takes making them mad. Maybe it takes, you know, pardon the language but pissing them off and ordering them to go to EAP or ordering them to go talk to somebody, you know, if it, I would rather make somebody mad and have them be mad at me for a little while than to lose them to suicide. Yeah. Yeah. If they get mad at you, fine. Yeah. But maybe they tell you. Yeah. And maybe that opens the book for you a little bit. You know, the first time that I started experiencing stuff with my anxiety, uh, I went to a coworker at work, uh, Jay human. Uh, he retired as an assistant chief. We, we were both canine handlers. Yes. And uh, I was going through a divorce. And I told Jay, I, I went to him at work, and I said, Jay, I think I'm going crazy. Mm. He, and he said, well, what's wrong? I said, man, I said, it, like when I'm in the shower, and the shower door's closed, and I get soap in my face, I said, I get panicked. 
and it's like I can't breathe and I got to get soap out of my face and get out of the shower. And, and I didn't understand why all this was happening. Yeah. And Jay told me, he said, man, he said, go, go talk to somebody at EAP. And I said, well, you know how that is. And he says, I went. Wow. That's what opened. That's what opened it for me. He was a senior officer that opened up and told me that he had been to EAP. Yeah. And I thought, well, Jay went, if Jay went and did it, I can do it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it is, you're mentoring as an older officer, an older firefighter, paramedic, you're mentoring the younger people. You want them to be healthier than you are, um, you know, smarter than you are, do the job better than you, than, than you did. Everybody wants to see people grow or they yeah. should. Yeah. Yeah. It's resiliency training so that you, you make it through this career that God knows why you picked it. You know, you're going to make the difference. Um, encourage them, you know, be honest with them. Yes, uh, absolutely. Chris, the, the, it does start with departments heads, you know, fostering um, a belief with, the men and women that are, are doing the job, right? Um, that you're, as we talked about it in previous pods, God, you're in that profession. You're going to experience effects of trauma that you see every day, right? Um, big or small, we talked about that earlier. It might be a small bit. It might be a little bit, but you're going to hang on to something from each call that you go out on. And, um, and departments know this. This is known. Right, they all know this. This is happening, and you're putting your men and women out there. So why not be proactive and let them believe? Know right that you're there to support them. Um, right, and it creates a, an environment, a healthier environment. You also want, you know, Jay spoke about it before. You you want your backup person or your person who your your partner. To be healthy, not unhealthy, um, if either physically right. or mentally. You want them to be, you know, 100% um, out there doing the job with you. It's, it's safe. It's, it's a better way. Everyone's going to be healthier and, and get the job done. So the department benefits when they have healthy um, men and women out there uh, working in the force um, to have them mentally and physically whole, but also the person themselves feels supported by the department. Yeah. And it's, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, and they, they feel safe uh, getting help, right? Like that, the interaction that, that you're talking about with that senior officer, that those interactions are the drive ter- drivetrain to the change that we want to see, which yeah. really shouldn't be a surprise right. because it's the opposite of those interactions that establish the status quo uh, without finding fault with generations past. It's, I think, understandable why, um, you know, we agreed to do these jobs and nobody knew what to do about about mental, emotional injuries. So it was always suck it up and drive on. And, and that, was, that was the best that they could do. But it was that example uh, and, and the manner in which it was set by respected men and women doing this job um, that were also suffering, you know? And, and then the newer generations come on and, and they don't ask for help because what they've always heard is, well, you know, what did you think you were going to see, right? What do you, you right. know? Um, so it, it should 
be no surprise, I think, but it certainly is a breath of fresh air to hear about interactions um, like that. And and I'm 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 sure it's it's those interactions um, that that create change, and it's exciting to to see um, a change in culture in in what is for sure the right direction. I think. Yeah. One of the one of my lifelong friends, um, his name's Basil Merritt. Uh, Basil's about two or three years younger than me, so he's around 50. Um, Basil worked for a small town here in Gaston County, Belmont Police Department. Um, had a lot of things going on in his life. Uh, his son left for football practice one day, forgot something, came back to the house to get some of his football gear, and uh, Basil had hanged himself in the garage. Wow. Uh, his son Hunter got him down. But Basil never talked about it. He never, he never talked. He, he just wouldn't bring it up until my bicycle ride. Mm-hmm. And when I was riding across the country, he called me. And by the time I finished my three months coming home, Basil and his son met me two days, three days out from me finishing coming back to Gastonia. And uh, since then, he's opened up and he talks to people and tells them of his experience. Wow. You know, it's, it's, it's like, he's not, he's lost the sense of the, the, the sense of shame that was associated with it. Yeah. It's, it's like that's kind of gone away for him and he'll talk about it now. Um, yeah. you know, I always said on my bike rides, if one person survives because, you know, I pedaled my butt off, then, then it's, it's all worth it. Mm. It's all worth it. Um, Absolutely. If everybody will, if everybody will go to work and say, you know, if, if I can help that one person, you know, it's worth it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I totally, totally get that. I mean, that's why, um, and I, I understand about the shame too. Um, you know, beginning for us losing Alex, for me, it was um, a lot of shame even saying the word suicide. Um, when someone would ask me right. how we how we lost him, and um, and I wouldn't tell them, um, and then I'm fortunate. I am fortunate enough to to own a little cafe here in the in the in the, in, the, in a wonderful town, and um, they uh, so many first responders come in here. It's not like a little hub for first responders, police, fire, EMS, the whole thing. They mm-hmm. all come in, and um, you know. I get to interact with a lot of police officers and firemen and the whole thing. And um, I realized that there was, through talking with them, interacting and, and having conversations with them, that um, Alex wasn't the only one that was struggling. There was a lot of first responders struggling too. So um, shame, uh, I decided I wanted to talk about it more. And I took those opportunities, interacting with those first responders to um, talk about mental health um, right. in first response. Just sort of like yourself, right, going out there. And, and that shame left me, so I get that. Um, you know, you said it sort of lifted from him, and, and that's what I wanted to do. So, And and by talking with those first responders, talking with Jay, um, and doing this podcast, if, one first, if, it's, if it helps one first responder, not only, you know, to save a life, right, to, to decide... I'm I'm not going to take my life today, um, mm-hmm. or um, it helps them um, have the courage to speak up, 
so that they can go and get help or continue right. with, with getting help, it's all worth it. And and that's the whole the whole deal. That's why we're doing that. And that's the purpose, Jay, right? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and, and people I mean, you know, my wife, she's she's uh she's an MS student. She has her master's degree in social work. So she understands all this mental stuff a thousand times better than I do. Yeah. And she has helped explain things to me. Um you know, people say, well, how could they do that? How could they do that? Well, that's easy for a rational person to sit there and say. Yes. But at that point, they're not rational. And that is the only way that they can see to get out. Yeah. You know, and, and it's got to be so bad, you know, to be at that level to have to do that to make your, your pain stop. Yeah. Um. You know, it, it's just, it, it's not a selfish thing. It, it's it's somebody that is trapped in a loop that they just don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. Um, on my bike ride this year, when I was in Iceland, uh, somebody called me that has, he's watched my rides across the country. He watched me down the East Coast. And he called me and told me that he nearly killed himself the night before. And we talked and, you know, I'm in Iceland. It's not like I can get in the car and drive five or six hours and talk to her. Yeah. Um, but encouraging, Hey, you know, it's, you do have, you're, you're hung in a loop right now, but you do have things in your life. You, you look at your child, you look at, you do have things in your life that makes it worthwhile. And, and you go and you call somebody or you talk to somebody and, and don't, don't take that step that you can't step back from. Yeah. Absolutely, it, because it's perm- it's permanent. It's it's done. It's permanent. Yeah, absolutely. So, I want to get into the bike ride. Right, you finished your first bike ride. Okay. Um, you were three months away from your family, right? Um, you started yes. off saying that you wanted to raise five thousand dollars. So, yes, ma'am. Did you achieve that goal? Uh, I, I know you did. I think we're somewhere, uh, I think we broke $60,000, somewhere in the low 60s, maybe. Yes. Um, yeah. It I- was, uh, you know, I started out with 304 people following me on Facebook and watching me on my first live that my wife told me I needed to do. And I said, you know, I'm 51 years old and I don't need to be doing Facebook live. And she said, yes, you do. <laughs> and I cooked, I cooked a can of spam roadside and you know, I don't know, like 40 people watch me cook spam. Yeah. Um, it, it's grown now to, I'm over 4,000 people that's on Facebook that, you know, they hear what I say, they hear and they see what I'm riding and they know what I'm riding for. And, and maybe they pick up the phone and talk to a friend that evening and say, there's this crazy ass guy. He's riding around Iceland <laughs> for this reason. Yeah. Well, if 2000 of the 4,000 did that, now I got 6,000, right? Yeah. And it, it, it grows, it grows exponentially. Um, I like to go back on my feeds and look and see, you know, who watched the video, how many times was it shared? How far did it reach? And, you know, and you, you start looking at some of this and some of the reaches are 7,000, 8,000. Well, that's great because it's, it's getting, getting that word out, out. but yeah. it's okay. If you're not okay, it's not, don't be ashamed of it. 
Yeah. Right. It's something that we can work with and we can work on. Absolutely. So, and you can get the help. You can get the help. And you can still have a healthy career and a healthy family and a healthy life for sure. So you raised over $60,000 in that first ride. Um, and then you decided to do it again the following year. <laughs> and you, I did. You, and you, 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 didn't, you didn't do the Transamerica again. You, you went from, you started off in Boston. I did. And then you, or, you, I, think you I think up there they call it Boston. Well, yeah, you can you can tell by my accent. I I'm not going to say it that way. <laughs> I started in I started in Boston. I decided I did not want to ride across mountains, uh, so I figured if I stayed close to the East Coast, it would be fairly flat. So I rode from Boston to Charleston, and um, likely would have to Key West on the ride. But my daughter that. You know, your kids are young one time. Yeah. Uh, and she had national dance competition in Charleston. So that's right aside of the MI. I wouldn't want to miss that again. Yeah. So I ended in Charleston. It was still, it was 1,107 miles. Perfect. Um, we raised $14,000, I think. Yeah. And then um, this year, then you decided <laughs> to go to Iceland. Why Iceland? <laughs> Share with us why Iceland. Oh, man. Iceland. Um, when I rode across the United States, my favorite part of it was the Pacific Northwest because I had never been up there and it was just the raw beauty and the nature of the waterfalls and the topography and, you know, the mountains and not, not saying that I love riding in mountains, but seeing them, the views was just spectacular. So I tried to think of somewhere that I could go to that wouldn't be like terribly hot and that it would be safe. And you know, I'm sure Facebook and Google has some algorithm that reads my mind. And I started getting all these things popping up about Iceland. So I started looking at Iceland about it was the safest country on the global peace index. And they had volcanoes and glaciers. And I thought, man, that would be really cool. And it was cool. <laughs> and it was wet. Um, it was wet. So I, yeah. I flew to Reykjavik. It was wet. Um, but you know what? It, it was a raw beauty. It was the things that I saw were gorgeous. You you can't take a picture and convey that to, to yeah. other people when they look at it. Yeah. Um, it was an amazing country with the nicest people you'll ever meet. Um, the most expensive food you'll ever eat. Um, uh, but you know, I, I met, I met people up there. I met people from Utah. I met two girls from Texas and, uh, a man from North Carolina and Pennsylvania, you meet people and, and then you end up staying in touch with these people and they hear your story while you're writing. They hear why you're writing. And some of those that I met, um, went on and donated to first help. Wow. You know, during my ride, um, yeah. Bob, Bob Clegg, uh, from silver, North Carolina. I, I met the man two different times on this bicycle ride and, and, and Bob sent a hundred dollars, nice. which is, it's fantastic. That supports these families that, that need a little help at a time when they're, when they're in crisis. Yeah. Um, but I think I ended up in Iceland was 917 miles, uh, in 16 days of riding. 16 days uh, you spent there? No, no. I spent 25 days in the country. Okay. But I, I rode for 16 of them. Okay. Um, 
I had a couple days while I was on Ring Road where the weather was just terrible. I didn't ride. Uh, I lived in my 28-square-foot tent on my 20-inch wide mattress. <laughs> um, Jordan, that, all that time. Yes, and then I, whenever I finished, I finished um, what would have been a three-day ride coming from Vic back to Reykjavik, which is the southern portion traveling east to west. Um, my plan would have been to ride it over a course of three days. But the, the first day when I set out riding, the wind was at my back at about 20 miles an hour, and it did, didn't rain but in the morning. Um, so I kept riding and ended up riding 114 miles. Uh, on my last day to get back into Reykjavik to beat the rainy weather and the change of wind direction. Yeah. Wow. So I had a extra couple extra days in Reykjavik to spend inside the tent while it was raining. Yeah. So I just want to share with the listeners that Chris, you, you, you do all this traveling, right. And, and like you went to Iceland this year, he, he takes on all the expense of all of this yourself, right? Um, yes. you, you take on all the expenses, no one paying for it. He doesn't stay in fancy hotels. He eats <laughs> spam. Maybe he can get a pizza every now and again. Um, I remember talking to you one night, um, and, and saying to you, you know, uh, staying dry and you know, I'm actually going in to have pizza and a beer tonight. Um, you know, so you do get to have that luxury, um, every now and again, but you take on all this expense. Um, so yes, um, from the beginning of the conversation that you said, if I'm going to do this, it has to be bigger than me and uh, right. to Melanie. And that has continued to, it feels to me anyway, it has continued to remain that way, that this journey that you're on, creating awareness for mental health and first response um, to end suicide, to smash the stigma, to support first help in their mission, you know, We've lost first. We've lost a loved one, right? But now these families are left, and as you know, the the difference in in how families are treated or resources that's available to families is very, very different um, to a first responder dying in the light of duty, right? So, um, but you helping families, um, it just encourages me. Even I can't speak for other families, but it encourages me to continue to speak out more to help another first responder. So I just want you to know, and I say that with my heart, man. So um, that it, it, it just encourages me to, to continue to do what I'm doing. If Christopher Lawrence can do it, I can do it. I can keep continue to speak out. I can continue in my own way, right? Continue to speak out, raise funds in, in some other ways and, and be able to help first responders. And um, and you do that too by speaking on your lives and, and encouraging us to say, yeah, I'm going to do it too. Um, so I want to thank you so much for that and um, and for what you do. And I can't wait to hear what journey you're going on <laughs> next year. Um, I'm sure there is going to be one um, for sure. You want to chime in, Jay? Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today, Christopher. I. I think that what you're doing matters uh, so much in, in so many ways. Some of them are obvious, you know, money raised, things like that. But uh, as I was listening to you talk about your, uh, you know, watching your, your social media growth and, you know, the different people that you meet, I was just thinking about the conversations that result about that. You know, one person saying to another, oh, did you hear about 
um, you know, this guy, Christopher Lawrence, or, you know, maybe people that know you, whatever, and retired police officer, what's he always riding for mental health? Who overhears those conversations, you know? Like, that that stuff really matters. They, it normalizes um, the, the okayness of speaking about mental health in, in our community, in the first responder community, and I think that really matters. And I applaud you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jay. Thank yes, you. thank you so much. And and again, I encourage um, you know our listeners to get onto uh, Christopher's Facebook page, um, a penny for their thoughts. Um, you know, first help is also, and and all the funds go to first help. Right? You you haven't changed your your who. You, no, no everything. Say that everything again. Goes to first help. It all goes to first help, right? Everything goes to first help. Yeah, everything every goes. Bit to, of it. It yeah. does. Yeah, so it's a it's a wonderful organization who has helped our family personally, and uh, many many other families. And uh, you know you're doing it, Chris. You're helping smash that stigma, and uh, um, and we're all in it. And hopefully there is change, and it creates change, and it creates change in departments, and it creates change for someone listening. You know what? Maybe I'll just go and get help. Um, and that's what it's all about. So. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for having an open and honest conversation with us, sharing your journey with us. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon, sir. After a long career in law enforcement and having been inspired by his father-in-law, Christopher decided to take on the challenge of a trans-American bike ride. It was important to Christopher as he embarked on this journey that he also aligned with a purpose greater than himself so that he'd be able to maintain the strength and perseverance to keep going, even when things became difficult, which they surely would. Christopher found that greater purpose in the organization Blue Help. He was able to raise funds far beyond his expectations, used to assist them in honoring the service of law enforcement officers who have died by suicide and offering comfort and honor to families who have lost an officer to suicide. Christopher has put quite a few more miles on his bike since that first ride. Each time he swears is his last until he's once again inspired by the families he meets being supported through Blue Help, just as he himself has inspired so many others, inspired them to see the good in people and along the way inspired them to recognize their own purpose, to keep going. So he does. Till next time. Till next time.